So I don't know if you have been around recently, but it got kind of cold. <laughs> and um, so like it was Friday evening was like 37 degrees. I walk into my house, it's like 54 degrees. And I was like, I'm not turning on the heat. I just turned off the air conditioner. And I grew up in a home that was always cold. And when we would complain about it, my dad would be like, get a blanket, that's what they're for. And so, and then he always said, when you have your own house, you can set the heat at whatever you want. And now that I have my own house, I get it. You don't wanna pay for that heat. And I just got done paying for the air. But I woke up Saturday morning, it was 51 degrees in the house. My dog, who's a 75 pound beefy girl, is buried under blankets. I was like, this is no way to live. So I turned on the heat, cause I'm a wimp, but I only set it to 60, so. We're gonna break in slowly. <laughs> we are going to continue with our series in John called Jesus, which I think is a pretty fitting title. And we just heard from these girls, like, I'm already weepy, guys. We haven't even got started. We, that this is what Jesus does, that he takes things that are broken and he reconciles them. And so with John, we're gonna be in chapter four. So if you have your Bibles, if you wanna turn there and get ready. With John, chapter one opens so beautifully because we have this picture of this cosmic eternal word who becomes flesh. And we move from things that are large in scope to individual encounters in nature. So last week, we heard about a conversation that he had with a Jewish man of the law. In the middle of the night, this guy shows up and he's like, I don't understand what you're talking about. And Jesus talks about being born again and what it means to have life like that. And this week, we're moving into another individual encounter, a, an individual conversation. Whereas last week, it was a Jewish man of the law who should have known. This week, it's a Samaritan woman who has no name in the middle of the day. And we find this beautiful encounter. So Jesus had been down in Judea. So if Judea is in the southern part of Israel and he wanted to go up to Galilee and to do that, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, nobody liked Samaria because they were essentially Jewish half-breeds. So they had Jewish background, they had Jewish custom, but they had also intermarried with a lot of foreign peoples. So there was sort of this otherness about them. And true Jews did not appreciate that. And Samaritans, because they, weren't, they didn't have that same community that the Jews, they built their own temple, they had their, they had their own system of worship. There might've been some syncretism, like they may have adopted other things. So they were viewed of as other. But Jesus and his disciples have to pass through this area to get to Galilee. So we pick up in, ver in chapter four, verse four, now, this is a narrative, guys. I want you to get prepared because we're gonna be reading a chunk of story. But you already know that I believe in you and your ability to follow along and read. So, let's get started. Verse four said, and he had to pass through Samaria. It's talking about Jesus. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. 
The sixth hour means it's about noon. It's the middle of the day. It's just a regular day. They're passing through town. It's a necessary journey. The disciples go into town to get some food. Jesus sits outside of town because they're not, they're not, the plan is not to stay. The plan is not to stay long. But verse seven, something happens. So picking up in verse seven, a woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink for his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. So Jesus has an immediate need. He's sitting by this well, this woman comes up to draw water and he's like, hey, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty. It's a legitimate need. But Jesus also doesn't do anything by accident. And this lady, um, I actually really love her and I'm excited about introducing you to her. So this lady, verse nine, gets a little attitude with Jesus. In verse nine, it says, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She gets attitude. She's like, why are you talking to me? (laughs) So this woman is coming to get water in the middle of the day, which people don't generally do. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But she's walking up to the well and she sees some rando dude sitting there and she's like, great, good. And then he starts talking to her. Now, when she says, why are you asking me for water? When she gets a little attitude, she names two reasons, because I'm a Samaritan and I'm a woman. So Samaritans are already not viewed well by Jews, but also being a woman, there's a significant gender prejudice. So the the common idea at the time was that men do not talk to women in public, not even your own wife. You do not talk to women in public because of the gossip it creates. No Jewish rabbi would ever talk to a woman in public, ever. And we know by this point in John that people are referring to Jesus as rabbi. So why is he talking to her? But also no Jew would ever willingly drink from a Samaritan's cup. So there's this like, she is especially curious as to why this random guy is talking to her and wants something from her. And she gets a little attitude. But in verse 10, we pick up and Jesus says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus doesn't mind. He doesn't mind her attitude. And I, as I've been studying this passage, I just get the impression that he likes her immediately. You know how you meet people and you're just like, there's something about you that I really like. Her attitude does not bother him at all. But he flips it back to her and he's like, girl, if you knew who it was I was asking you for something, you would be asking me. He mentions living water. He is intentionally, this random conversation, he is purposefully and intentionally leading her into something something deeper. He is not cruel to her. He is not sharp. He does not shut her down. He's pursuing something here. But verse 11, we see that she's still trying to instigate. She doesn't get what he's talking about. She doesn't know who he is. He's just some random guy talking about living water, which is weird. But verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. So like, what do you have to offer me? Because you literally have nothing. Where do you get that living water? And are you greater than our father Jacob as he gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? She's still trying to instigate. So now she doesn't mind that he's talking to her. She's trying to draw him into debate. She's like, all right, if you wanna chat, let's do this. And she mentions their mutual ancestor Jacob because she's trying to elevate her own status. 
as a Samaritan woman, she sees him as a Jewish rabbi. And she's like, look, man, let's talk about this. There's a lot of baggage here. Let's bring it all out. And she tries to lead him into unnecessary debate. But here's point number one, guys. This whole, this, this message is called the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And we'll get, and we'll get there because truth number one, what we find out here is that Jesus is not scared of you. Jesus is not scared of you. Your defense mechanisms, your instigations, your avoidance, nothing you do will scare Jesus away. And I think a lot of times we try. Do you ever like sense Jesus like in the peripheral trying to get your attention and you're just like, I can't, I can't right now. And so you like actively ignore him until he's like, we, we, look, we need to talk about something. He's not scared of you and he's not scared of your, your defense mechanisms. And so everything that she's doing to try to lead him in another direction, he doesn't mind. He's not scared of it. He doesn't get sidetracked. So as we pick up in verse 13, Jesus said to her, he's going on with this living water. He says to her, everyone who drinks of this water, this water coming from the well, will be thirsty again. The water I give to him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He doesn't get sidetracked. He is on mission, which is funny because earlier when it talks about how he sits down at the well, it mentions that he's weary, he's tired. And even in the midst of his own physical limitations, he's still on mission. He's still pursuing something here. And he starts talking about life again, but true life, not just regular life. Last week was born again. This week is true life, eternal life that he mentions in this regular conversation with this regular nameless woman, he's pursuing something here. He is introducing what is satisfying over what is temporary, but she doesn't get it. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. It's a physical need. She has a need, it's fetching water. And if he can give her water that she won't have to fetch anymore, she's like, cool, let's do it. Let's talk, let's have this conversation. It would be nice to not have to fetch water. But verse 16 is where we go a little deeper. Verse 16, Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. So Jesus is about to take the conversation farther, but he does here, he does something here that's appropriate because if he's going to continue engaging in this conversation with this woman, it would be appropriate to have a man around. That's why he tells her, go call your husband. There are gender and societal expectations. He also asks about her husband because he knows her and she's gonna have to answer honestly or lie to him. Either way, he's gonna know what happens. So we learn more about her here because Jesus exposes a personal reality in her life. Multiple marriages at this time were not frowned upon. It was okay to get married more than one time, but rabbis generally taught that three is a good number. Like you don't really need to be married more than three times. But something has happened to her in her life that she's not only been married five times, she's not even bothering with marriage anymore. Now we know why she's getting water in the middle of the day. 
women would not get water in the middle of the day because it's hot and it's tedious work and it's laborious. And they would do it first thing in the morning when it's cool, the sun had not risen all the way. It was kind of a communal thing. They would meet with one another, draw water together, and then go on with their days. But what we learn about her is that she's getting water in the middle of the day because she's avoiding people. There isn't anyone else getting water at that time. She's protecting herself. She's avoiding, she's set up defense mechanisms in her life to avoid dealing with what other people have to say. Now what has happened in her life, being a Samaritan, being a woman, being married multiple times and not bothering with marriage anymore is not untrue. It's not untrue, these are facts. But sometimes when people discover true things about us, it can create an entirely new reality in our lives. So what is true about her is that she is a Samaritan. There is no argument there. But what is untrue that she has accepted as true and carried as baggage in her life is that She's a half-breed. She's less than. She's not part of the true people of God. The Samaritans are not part of the true people of God. She's not worthy of friendship. She's not worthy of attention. That's why she's alone in the middle of the day. She's a pariah. And these things are not true, but she has accepted them as truth in her life. What is also true is that she has questionable moral history. We don't know all the details, but something has happened and she has made decisions that have affected where she is right now. What is untrue, but could be perceived as true because of the community around her, because of the gossip of people, because of the perceptions of others, is that she could have the title of being loose or immoral or unworthy of notice or unworthy of friendship. So this woman is carrying around this stuff and Jesus pulls it out of her. What, has, what is untrue has become true to her. This is what this lady is carrying around. No wonder she's alone. No wonder she's trying to instigate. It's a defense mechanism. If you wanna to talk to me, then you tell me the answers to all of these questions because I've got some issues. No wonder she's seeking some sort of equality and elevated status. There are things going on here. And Jesus is drawing them out because that's what he does. So picking up in verse 19, the woman says to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I mean, of course, you just told me everything. Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. It gets a little too personal for her because Jesus just spoke of her reality. And she's like, cool, I see that you know things, but let's talk about this. She's still trying to divert him because it's personal. Since you are a prophet, let's talk about worship. She's still trying to lead him into debate because it's a defense mechanism. This is how she's operating now. This is how she works. But remember, Jesus is not afraid. He's not going to be diverted. So in verse 21, says, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 
if you are reading in your Bible, I would underline that, that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for that's what the Father is looking for. Jesus won't be diverted. If this is where she wants to go, fine, he'll go there. Because this is what he tells her, that this is not a location issue. This is not a nationality issue. This is a heart issue. This is a spirit issue. True worship is of the spirit. A worshiper has to deal honestly and openly with God because that is what God wants. God is not interested in location or motions. God is interested in your heart and you dealing honestly and openly with him. True worship is a heart issue. And that's what he's leading her to. Jesus is not so much interested in what you have done. He can get to that. You can talk about that later. There's always opportunity for growth. He's okay. What he is most interested in is you, is your heart. And that's what we're getting to here with this woman. He knows where she's coming from. He knows that. It's not a surprise to him. He's not going to be diverted by, where, by what she's talking about. If you want to talk about worship, let's talk about worship because it's your heart. That's what he's interested in. God is spirit. He is not confined to one place. He is not conceived of as a material being. No idol can depict him. No abstract concept can describe him. And he is concerned with one thing, and that is you dealing openly and honestly with him, your true heart and his presence. That's what we're after here. So in verse 25, it exposes something in her. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming he who is called Christ. I know that he's coming. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. She's exposed. She knows she has a need. She knows she's not gonna win this conversation. She's aware of what's going on. And it's not that the fight goes out of her, it's the fact that her desire for more of God, of truth is exposed. And she doesn't know when, if ever, if ever, that need will get met if those questions will be answered because she's waiting for the Messiah to show up and provide these answers. And I'm sorry, because verse 26 is the best. So verse 26, this woman who is exposed, who's wanting more, who's ready. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This nameless woman on the, on the outskirts of this city, in the middle of nowhere, meets the Messiah. And that's who Jesus is. He tells her, it's me. She's like, I know we'll know this someday. And he's like, no, it's happening now. I'm telling you now, this is, it's me. There's no more waiting. And that's awesome. That's who Jesus is. And I have been thinking about that, like Jesus sharing who he is with us. I've been thinking about, I've been dealing with this really over the last year of Jesus exposing things in my own life that need to be dealt with. Um, so I, and to give a little backstory, I have an older sister. She's 15 months older. 
I love, I love her, I respect her, I'm proud of her. I think she's awesome. But having a sister who's 15 months older, things get a little, a little close sometimes. Um, so I'm smart, she's smarter. I'm athletic, she has more natural ability. And growing up, it was fine, it was totally fine because it was never an issue at home. The problem started when other people began to notice and point it out. Because other people are great at pointing out like things they don't need to point out. <laughs> um, so, and there are things that are true. Like I don't, she is objectively smarter, that's fine. She's objectively more athletic. I'm fine, I'm fine with that, I'm proud of her. The problem is that I had to follow her the first 20 years of my life. And that's where the issues came. My parents would have to meet with teachers because she would go through first and they would come in and they would be like, no, Julia is not Sarah. And the teachers would be like, yeah, 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 it's fine. And then the inevitable, par the inevitable parent-teacher conference would happen and they would be like, Julia is not Sarah. And my parents would be like, oh, duh, obviously, we tried to tell you, but she is our coolest kid. They didn't, they didn't say that. <laughs> I only added it for emphasis. They thought it though, it's fine. <laughs> so there are things that I started to believe about myself because of what other people saw and thought and commented on, and that became my perceived reality. So there was always this internal comparison, like I'm not her and other people see that. But it all came to a culmination in college. I was 20 years old. I was hanging out with this guy. We were not dating. Um, I was hanging out with this guy and he, in a moment of being predatory and manipulative, said, you know, people wanna know why I hang out with you because your sister is the pretty one. I know, right? I'm sorry I'm so hideous, thank you. Now, 34-year-old Julia would handle that a little bit differently. I'd punch him in the face, get out of the car, and move on with life. <laughs> but 20-year-old Julia, that was it. That was it because he said out loud what I already thought to be true. So it had to be true because if he saw it, then other people saw it too. And it became real. So this thing that was untrue, I began to internalize as true and it started to affect everything. It, it just, it carried over into my first ministry experience. It carried over into graduate school. It carried over into relationships because I developed this defense mechanism of keeping everyone at arm's length experiences, opportunities, jobs, people. If I keep you out here, you can't tell me anything about myself that I don't already know. And it was damaging. That one moment when I was 20 years old did years worth of damage because I had internalized an untrue thing as truth. And actually I have, um, the Lord started working in me about this about a year ago about a year ago. And I, I journal because that is how the Lord speaks to me. And I, um, I wrote this down uh, because it was very clearly from the Lord and I wanted to share it with you this morning um, because I know that it's not just for me. But about a year ago, the Lord started to pull out things and he said very clearly, you, you believe things about yourself that are not true. It has affected your perception of your own value. 
but you have value because your identity is in me. I have given you value. The things I've created in you and created you to be have found their value because you find yourself in me. Do not let what you perceive others to see about you dictate your value. Your value is in me and it will not change on any given day. It is immeasurable. It does not change because I do not change. And you know who he is. He tells us in verse 26, he says, I am the Messiah. I am the eternal word made flesh dwelling among you. I am the one who will save, who will liberate, who will restore. I am the one who will make right the wrongs that have been done. I am the one who brings freedom to the outcast and the oppressed. I am the one who will rule eternally with truth and righteousness and justice. That is the Lord. That is the Lord. That is who Jesus is. And in this, na and in this moment, with this nameless lady who is fully exposed, he, tell he proclaims what is true. He tells us what is true. So truth number two, if you don't walk away with anything else this morning, I want you to walk away with this. I want you to remember this for the rest of your life, that the truth of who Jesus is, is greater than any truth about yourself. That is the truth. The truth of who Jesus is, is stronger than anything you have ever done. The truth of who Jesus is, is more powerful than anything that holds you down or holds you back, including defense mechanisms, including avoidance, including trying to instigate things with Jesus. He can handle that. He can cover that because of who he is. He wants to cut through all of that. He wants to tell you, I know you. I know everything about you. The things that bring me delight, the things that we need to talk about, the places that need growth and work, I know all of these things. And I want to tell you who I am in spite of these things. Because of these things, I want to bring you life, true life. That is who Jesus is. Let the overriding truth about your life be the fact that you know Jesus because that's what changes everything. And it's the purposefulness of this encounter that I can't get over. It's the purposefulness of how he draws her out, of how he draws things out of us. I've been working through this for a year. And because he started to pull things out from my own life, I started to recognize patterns of behavior, defense mechanisms that I had created things that I recognized and thought, holy cow, I probably need to work through this. And I have, I started going to counseling. I think that we view counseling as something that we do because our whole life is unraveling and that's not the case. Sometimes we just need somebody who's totally objective to be like, okay, this is, let's work through this, let's deal with this and let's move on. And that's what Jesus is doing, pulling this truth out of her. Okay, let's acknowledge this, but then let's acknowledge me and who I am and what I can do. Jesus is not afraid of who you are or what you've done. He's at home with you. He's himself with you. And we see this in this interaction. He's not afraid of her. He's just as easy with her as he was with Nicodemus, as he is with his disciples. He is himself with you. So let the truth of who he is be greater than any truth about yourself. In verse 27, I just picture this moment. He like, she's like, I'm waiting for the Messiah. He'll reveal these things. 
And Jesus is like, it's a very personal moment. And he's like, it's me. And you can just imagine this like serious tension that they have. And in verse 27, the disciples show up. <laughs> and it just kind of breaks the moment. So verse 27, the disciples show up. This lady leaves and goes back into town. She actually leaves her water pot and goes back into town. She, she leaves the jar. She disregards her own reputation because there is something that she knows that other people need to know. There is something that she has experienced that other people need to experience. So final point, truth number three, is that the truth of who Jesus is, is not just for you. I think sometimes we let what Jesus has done, we internalize it and we hold on to it, but it's not just for you. So this woman goes back into town and she tells the people, come and see this guy. He has told me everything that I've ever done. Could he be the Messiah? So the people go and see for themselves. In verse 39, it says many Samaritans, I don't think this is, I'll just have to listen. I don't think this is up there, but it says many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. In verse 41, it says, And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the, wor of the world. So people believe because of her testimony. Many more believe because they have their own experience with him. Jesus stays there two days. That wasn't the plan. They were just passing through. But he stays there two days. Worship team, if you want to come back up, you guys can come on up. What would have happened if she had kept this encounter to herself? If she has this moment, this powerful moment with Jesus, and she just internalizes it and does nothing with it. It's powerful for her. It changes everything for her. But what would have happened if she just let it be that? An entire town would have missed out on Jesus. And who knows what would have happened? What was the fruit of that entire town believing? Who knows what fruit came from that? But entire, an entire town would have, would have missed out on Jesus. Your encounter with Jesus has the ability to change other people's lives. And Teen Challenge Girls, I want you to remember this. I want you to take this with heart. You've had powerful experiences with Jesus. Let it change other people's lives. You know the truth. You are the one who points the way. I think a lot of times we put too much pressure on ourselves. Like, we have to have good theology. We have to have all these things. We have to have a huge discussion. We have to, like, sit down and talk it out and go through the entire book of Romans. And that's not the case. You can just be like, guys, I know this person who has changed everything. And he could change everything for you. Because other people need to know. Will you play something softly? Do you mind? I just feel like weird being in front of them and nothing is happening. <laughs> so my question, my question is, what is stopping you? What is stopping your encounter with Jesus? What is stopping you from telling others about your encounter with Jesus? Because if you have untrue truths that you have adopted, it's time to work through those. 
if you have defense mechanisms that you've created just to navigate through life, just to survive, it's time to work through those. If you have a closed off heart, you don't even know what true worship is. You don't even know what it is to be open and honest with the Lord. You have a chance to change that. Jesus is not afraid of you. Jesus just wants you. He's not afraid of who you are. He's not afraid of what you've done. He can cover that. He can help you work through those things. He can help you grow beyond that. He can use that in your life to reach other people. We're about to move into this opportunity to worship in spirit and in truth, to deal openly and honestly with the God of heaven. Because we know encounters with the Lord can happen on regular days when we're just going about our business. He can meet us wherever we are. So I would encourage you to deal wherever you are, deal openly and honestly with God. Be yourself in this moment, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, be fully yourself because he knows you and he loves you and he wants you to know him. He's here to say, I'm the Messiah. I can change everything. Let's pray. Lord, what do we, what do we even say to you? Thank you for who you are, that you came and lived among us, that even in your own physical limitations, you never lost sight of the mission, you never lost sight of the one. Thank you that that doesn't change, that you still come after us, you still pursue us, you're still not afraid of us, you're still ready to intervene and change everything in our lives. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move in hearts this morning. That people who have avoided you for a long time would be open to you and what you can do. We thank you for this moment with you. We thank you that you are here, that you love us without limit. We love you and we're grateful to you. It's in your awesome way we pray. Amen.